Hi, this is Mike Livermore, and with me today is John Cannon, Professor of Law Emeritus at the University of Virginia. John has a long and distinguished career as a law scholar and practitioner. He served as EPA's general counsel during the Clinton administration, where he authored the famous Cannon Memo that laid out the case for the the agency's authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions under the Clean Air Act. This memo was cited in Massachusetts v. EPA, and this is a legal question that remains at the heart of current climate change policy in the U.S. John's current book project takes a step back from the daily grind of environmental law and politics to reflect on the role of place in our lives and in structuring our relationships to the natural world. I've been fortunate to have read some of the draft chapters, and it's a wonderful exploration of these questions. I'm looking forward to chatting about them today. John, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Mike. It's great to be with you this morning. So, Maybe just to get us started, how did you come to this idea of of place? Like, what what maybe what is the idea of place? <laughs> um, I, I know what a place is generally, but I think there's more to the concept um, than maybe in our common uh, common way of talking. And yes, yeah, so what 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 is this concept, and how did you how did you come to it? Well, I think I've been coming to it um, all my adult life, and perhaps before that. Um, mm-hmm. I think naturally and instinctively relate, we relate to places, places that we are, places that we live, places that we call home. And I think we do that from early childhood on, mostly in a pretty unconscious way. Um, but when I sort of became aware of my environmental proclivities, I began to think about the places that I'd been and my experiences there and what that meant for me going forward in terms of my views and attitudes and feelings uh, about the environment. Uh, so I think that's that basic concept has been percolating for a long time. I will tell you in, the, in my service at EPA, uh, I was struck both by the importance of the agency's work, but also by the level of abstraction at mm-hmm. which that work moved forward. So when we adopted air quality standards, they were national air quality standards. When we adopted uh, standards for cleanup of Superfund sites, they were uh, standards that were intended to be uniform to create um, uh, standard levels of tolerable risk and so forth at sites around the country. Uh, they they didn't, at least on their face, in many cases, acknowledge the unique qualities of different places or the feelings and um, preferences of the people actually living in those places. And I... I totally committed to the project of environmental regulation, um, but also felt that there was something missing in the presentation, if not the formulation, of these rules. And for a time at EPA, I pushed uh, this notion of place-based environmental protection, which was to appeal more directly to the concerns and um, aspirations of people in particular places when we were talking about regulations that Mm -hmm. were national in effect but had a particular 
impact. And, and for a while, the administrator was talking about protecting real people in real places as a, as a way of expressing um, that connection. Uh, but I think the tension is there and it continues today. Um, that puts me in mind of a, um, a passage that I really like from Bill Ruckel's house. Have you, did you ever interact with Bill Russell's house? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah. I actually was an associate in the law firm that he started before I went to EPA, and then I interacted with him since then. <laughs> For folks who are unfamiliar, this is kind of one of the great figures in, in U.S. Yes. environmental law and policy over the last several decades. Um, EPA administrator twice uh, during uh, Republican administrations, but also um, widely beloved within the environmental community. Um, the passage that I'm um, thinking of is actually a sign it for one of my classes, which is part of why I, I remember it. it. Goes environmentalism at its inception was a grand vision, one that nearly all Americans willingly shared. Somehow that vision of the essential unity of nature and of the need to bring industrial society into harmony with it has been lost among the parts per billion, and with it we have lost the capacity to reach social consensus on environmental policy. So that sounds kind of similar to the sentiment that you were describing. Yes, I, that that is certainly part of it. Um, and the other part of it is that, you know, environmentalism as a general concept and connection with nature as a general concept are fine, but those all have their expression in, at least in my experience, in particular places and actually through individual or community experience. So... Part of what I'm, so I think maybe there are like two ways or two, you know, kind of ways into this idea of place as it relates to this question of, um, you know, kind of how we think about environmental policy at a very high level. So one is as a way of communicating. And I can imagine, you know, you know, a PR conversation or a conversation with communications people that goes along the lines of, look, we can't talk about parts per billion. Nobody knows what that is. We can't talk about the value of statistical right. life. That sounds crazy. You know, we need to we need to bring in the kids that are getting asthma or we need to mm. bring in the moms or we need to bring in the, um, the doctors or whatever, just as a way of... Um, you know, the, the way any good journalist, right, frames a story, uh, even if it's about something very abstract, like, you know, uh, education policy, right? The lead is about some kid and or some parents or whatever, right? So as a way of kind of humanizing these um, these seemingly abstract policy questions. So that's kind of one angle to this. But I th it seems like you've, there's, there's something else, too, which is... Well, I don't know. Like, so is that the whole story or is there, is there more to this concept that is deeper in the sense that it tells us, you know, I don't know how we should be thinking about right. environmental policy or how we should be thinking about our relationship to the natural world. And if we think in this purely abstract way, it will, that will lead us astray and somehow. I think, uh, so I think the communications uh, are an important part of it. And that's sort of, when I was speaking earlier about place-based environmental protection, that's that was the thrust of that. But there mm -hmm. is, I think, at least in my perception, something deeper going on here. So the, the whole structure of environmental law, which is very complicated, and the creation of environmental policy, which can get quite uh, analytical or technical, uh, presume certain 
dispositions or inclinations on the part of people, certain values mm. that, that we're trying to protect mm -hmm. through collective action. And where do those values come from? How do they get shaped? Um, and my own sense of this is that um, those values and, and the worldviews that they are part of get shaped through our experience in particular places at particular times as we grow up and mature, as we go to work, as we seek... Uh, recreational um, activities and um, and otherwise live our lives. So the so there's a there's a sense I have that these that formative experiences within particular places. I mean, our experiences all take place within a place, right? Mm -hmm. That these formative experiences, um, both individually and collectively. Um, have have something significant to do with place and the mm -hmm. places where they occur. And when I talk about place, I'm not just talking about the biophysical place. I'm talking mm -hmm. about the social and economic um, uh, elements of place too. And in my uh, in my concept, they all those things go together and are interacting all the time. Mm. So. Um Tell me if you if this sounds sounds wrong, but economists will sometimes talk about preferences, <laughs> right? Yeah, right? and you know one of the things that one way of thinking about environmental law and policy is well, you know people have preferences for you know environmental amenities, clean air, clean water, right? Um, you know nice vistas, uh, open spaces, or whatever, and that these what we're doing in environmental law is protecting these amenities because people care about them, because people value them. Right, right. And typically economists don't inquire into how people come to those preferences. Why do people like the things they do? We just, economists again, or the economic perspective just takes as a given that people like certain things. And then, um, you know, normatively we might go about the project of maximizing the things that people like and want. And perhaps the place-based perspective or the place perspective that you're discussing is inquiring into how do we come to value the things that we value, um, want the things that we want, uh, dislike or be averse to things that we uh, that we don't like. That, that's exactly correct. <laughs> I mean, the, the idea is that we, I mean, who, who knows where preferences come from? They come from all sorts of places. But in my experience, uh, my interaction with natural environments and social environments um, leads to the formation of, a, of certain likes and dislikes, certain attractions and uh, not attractions. Yeah, aversions, yeah. Aversions. And, you know, if I were an economist, I'd try to capture my, my senses along those lines with the senses of other people and aggregate them and come to some cost-benefit uh, calculation. But the, but the origins uh, of those preferences seem to me to be bedded in experience, and, mm -hmm. and that experience takes place in a place. <laughs> right, right. Uh, or many places over time. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, and modern people don't live in one place. And our experiences are really an aggregate of experiences that we have in many different places. Uh, but those, 
those experiences, I think, are, are foundational to, to how, we, how we value the world and what we want, want from it going forward. There's so many fun ways to take this conversation, but maybe maybe one, what I think is a hard question. This might not be such a hard question for 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 you. You talk, you 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 provide, you, you let me know. But so so it, you know, one idea here is that the project or thinking about place in the in this way of of trying to come to understand how people value the things that they value and so on is as a descriptive project. It's a process. It's a social, cultural, psychological process um, that we're interested in as scientists or as humanists or, you know, just scholars um, interested in how the world works. And then there's another way of thinking about it, which is that there's a normative component to it, that there are some things that we ought to value. There are some things that we ought to be averse to. And um, it's important to understand how people really come to these, to their values, because then we can start to think in sophisticated ways about how to structure the world or structure people's experience such that they come to value the things that they ought to value. And I'm curious, which of these two broad frameworks uh, kind of better describes your interest in, in this, in this area, in these questions? Well, I think it's both. <laughs> I think the descriptive, uh, the descriptive component is important, at least in the um, thing I'm working on now. But there's, I think, inevitably an, a normative component. Um, that is, I, I, I see value in places, in certain dimensions of places, um, that I think is important. And I'm my aspiration is that other people will think they're important too. Um, and that's not necessarily the case. I mean, I, you know, I live in the country. I, uh, there's a large tract of land next to me that, uh, was until recently forested. And I loved the, 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 the woods and I walked through the woods with the permission of my neighbor and it was beautiful and I got a lot of benefit from that and then my neighbor decided that he wanted to create uh, pasture land for cattle mm -hmm. and he cut down all the woods and mm -hmm. that was his prerogative but um, that was that was something as a normative matter I objected to and probably as a matter of purely personal interest <laughs> um, and he had a he had another idea in mind as the value of that landscape for certain enterprises that he right. wanted to undertake. Uh, so that's a norm, you know, that's a that's an example of a normative conflict at a very local, personal level, and those take place all the time. I think it's I I don't I don't think the normative, at least in this setting, I don't think the normative project is one of. Um, advocacy in a direct way i think it's more a, a matter of modeling or showing people how one comes or might come to a deeper appreciation for example of the uh, of the value of forested land mm -hmm. um and and that's why I, I at least for the purpose of this book i'm taking um a, a less discursive and more narrative uh, mm -hmm. uh, approach. 
Um, this is a, it's a great example. And so I, I, I'm inclined to kind of push on it to see if sure, we can, yeah, see, can see if we can, uh, if it's illuminating. So, so on the one hand, we might think, look, you know, there's just some finite resources in the world and, you know, we need to decide what to do with them. And, and we might have just conflicting wants and desires. And, you know, there's a, there's a cake, I want some of the cake. You want some of the cake. Everybody else wants some of the cake. And, you know, um, and that's just the way it is, right? And and under that view, right, and maybe interjecting a little bit of this kind of notion of place into that, you come to um, a way of relating to this land by walking there and through your own experiences with forests and the, and the value that you get out of interacting with um, with with a place when it has certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. And then this fellow has a different set of experiences with different places. And who knows, let's just make it up and say he lived out in the, in the, in the West (laughs) and he is familiar with these, you know, pasture lands and cattle. And, you know, that's a place based understanding of the world. Right. And, and an understanding of, um, of the value of place that's in part commercial, um, you know, that, that you get some commercial value by, um, but it's but it's um, productive, right? The, the, the thinking right. of land being used, being put to a productive use, um, which comes out of a experience of place, um, is part of his worldview. And so you, so what you have here is a conflict over a, a finite resource, a chunk of land, and and two different ideas about how to put it to its best use. And so, I guess to really put a fine point on it, would be the distinction on the one hand that this is just Again, a finite resource, two different conflicting ideas of how to put it to its best use, and that's all there is to it. And there's just a social question of how to resolve that conflict. Or, normatively, you're right and he's wrong, <laughs> right? Or at least that's possible. You maybe you're not 100 percent right. sure, but you think you're right, and you think there is such a thing to be right. Um, he might think he's right, but one of you is in fact right, and one of you is in fact right. wrong. <laughs> Well, that is a great. Uh, uh, well, I think I'm right, of course. Right? <laughs> you think you're really right, yeah. But right. I don't. Okay. But I don't really think I'm right. I mean, part of part of what I'm trying to do in this book is is illustrate. I mean, the, you know, these these conflicts exist all over, and we understand them. The the distinction between you know landscapes there for our recreational use or. or and, um, aesthetic enjoyment and landscapes mm-hmm. that are put to work uh, for for different productive uses mm-hmm. uh, but uh, my 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 sense is that well uh, just to carry that forward that yeah. tension is always there mm-hmm. and I don't think it's resolvable in terms of yeah good always protect bad mm-hmm. all uh, you know never never develop or exploit mm-hmm. as the sure. word is sometimes used because human beings are users of nature they we we, we evolved that way mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the way we got to where we are today and the way we can continue uh, you know uh, with the with the level of of uh comfort and and longevity that we have mm-hmm. uh, so it's it's always a balance I don't think there's one good side or bad side but I think um, in a way it's just part of, part of my project is just 
to explore in a way that I think is more more place based, more specific. Mm-hmm. That particular uh, that particular divide, and maybe I guess this would be my normative thumb on the scale. Maybe develop in a in a more in a more persuasive way. Uh, the sense of the importance or value of natural landscapes for human flourishing, mm-hmm. uh, because I think that's something that's easy to uh, to put aside in the in the drive to to maximize sort of the productivity of of land mm-hmm. and resources. And it's something that I think is worth constantly bringing to the fore and showing uh, again the importance of. And so that, you know, just to put a fine point on it, that sounds like a claim, at least partially, about mistake. That um, that if we were to fail to appropriately, or people who fail to appropriately value the role of natural landscapes and human flourishing are making a mistake. That that it's it's not simply a you know a preference, um, you know, s- simply different ways of looking at the world, but at least you know as human beings are currently, you know, you know, are, are, you know, culturally and biologically oriented, that there is a better and worse way of thinking about at least this question. That again. Not to mean that it's a be-all, end-all, and that there shouldn't be no such thing as development and the like, but um, but there are better and worse ways of approaching these questions. Um, in part, you know, if you're informed by um, by this better way of thinking about landscapes, and maybe just to 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 add something to that is, if someone were to only value natural natural landscapes and to um, disregard altogether uh, human, you know, direct human needs, you know, say I didn't care if people starved to death. <laughs> um, that would be a mistake too. That would be a mistake too. I guess what I, uh, I'm urging probably implicitly is that, is that people adopt an open and deliberative approach to these issues um, in a way that allows them to to the extent that any individual can, to integrate these different dimensions, but also in the process of that, making sure they give full expression to those different dimensions and don't, you know, and don't artificially diminish or, or minimize them. So here, here's another related question, I, and maybe maybe we can move tax a little bit from this. It's funny because the the point of your project is to ground us in particular places, and then all right. I want to do is right. take us to the most abstract way of talking of course, about this, that, and that's part of what, <laughs> what I'm pushing back against. That, right, right, right. right. <laughs> but but just to do one more very abstract question, um, <laughs> I, I'm wondering if the the sensibility that you're describing here is is ethical or if it's aesthetic. Um, in the in the way that you know, on the one hand, if if someone were to come along and say, "Look, I just don't care if other people starve to death," that would be, a, I mean, I would certainly think that would be an ethical mistake on their part. They'd be making a huge moral error. Right. Um, 
On the other hand, if someone were to say, look, I just don't care about natural landscapes. I, I like cities. I like to see, I like, you know, when I look out at the world, you know, if I see undeveloped land, I want to, you know, let's put a mall there. Let's <laughs> right, put a, right. let's put a strip mine there. You know, is that a moral mistake or are they making an aesthetic mistake? The same way that if someone were to look at some, you know, hand drawing that, that I made and say, oh, that's actually, you know, kind of better art than um, Picasso's Guernica, right? They would be making a, a severely uh, mistaken aesthetic judgment. Um, what do, what, how would you classify this, this, what you're describing? Well, I'm not sure. And I know there's a, a lot of moral philosophy about this, or I'm guessing there is. That, there's a lot of moral uh, philosophy about everything, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I'm not sure there is a, a, a firm distinction between aesthetics and ethical judgments. Um, I mean, we talk about the, or at least people used to talk about the the true, the good, and the beautiful. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think there's something in 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 eight innate in us that uh, encourages us to connect what we think is beautiful with what we think is good. Uh, but that doesn't solve the problem, of course, because people think different things are beautiful, <laughs> right? Um, and I and and uh, I I think our notions of beauty evolve over time, depending on our experiences. But you're exactly right. I mean, there are people, there are developers who have talked to who say, you know, they see open land as waste. Right. Hey, probably waste. a good chunk yeah. of human history yeah. looked at. You know, right. I mean, open land was 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 dangerous. Right. It was waste and it was not right. pretty. It was right. it was something to be transformed into settlements uh, or, right. or development that was useful to human beings right. and those were beautiful. Cities are beautiful and I actually think cities are beautiful too in their own ways. Um, but but uh, so I, I, I guess I'm avoiding your question. I don't, I'm not sure that there's a strong... <laughs> Distinction, and uh, but there, there probably is more of a distinction than I'm willing or able to articulate. Um, so, so to maybe get us back to a, a, a somewhat more concrete set of um, cases, I'm part of what I think is is an interesting tension in the contemporary environmental movement is exactly on this thing that we're talking about, which is. Um, what I might call the old school view about natural landscapes, which I think right. is probably closer to the, what you're articulating right? and how that's in somewhat intention or actually often in an extreme tension with um, the need to devote substantial parts of the landscape to renewable energy development right. if we're going right. to address climate change right. and, right. you know, putting, you know, wind turbines, in, you know, on mountaintops, um, you know, freeing up large swaths of offshore areas for, for wind turbines. And then, you know, even more land intensive is solar going out to the Mojave Desert and carpeting it with um, solar panels. Um do you what what do you think of this of this tension in the in the contemporary environmental movement is it is it just a matter of kind of striking the right balance i mean that's you know uh, i think that's uh, a lot of people would agree with that very generally but do you do you think it undermines some of the moral force of the environmental movement when they have to 
be advocating both things simultaneously <laughs> for right. the natural landscape and for you know very intensive development. Right. So that's a great that's a great question, and uh, I think it's a real problem for at least traditional environmentalists. Um, and I start I start by by saying something obvious that is place is is exists at different scales, right? So we have our home place, our place of most immediate experience, but there are also places that we define and think of and relate to at larger scales, like regions and states and nations, and I would say also the planet. Um, obviously, our relationship to the planet is more attenuated or abstract than our relation to our home place, but I think it's nonetheless an important one, and it's informed by more and more information that we have. I mean, maybe not so much direct experience, but but information that we get in from studies and sure. um, newspaper accounts and everything that we can go on the World Wide Web and find out in a second. And um, that that connection to the planet means that we have concerns, or might mean that we have concerns about the health of the planet as a whole, and not just our particular environment. And I think that's where I see the tension getting resolved. I have solar panels on our on our property, um, sufficient to, to provide us with our electrical needs over the year and i think they're beautiful mm. and part of part of the reason i think they're beautiful and good is that i'm relating relating them to a larger planetary need i'm if i were just thinking of my own place i'm not sure that i would think that they were beautiful mm -hmm. but the but the perspective the shift in scales allows me to say those are great and mm. we ought to have more of them and I could say the same about transmission lines and wind farms. And I think, actually, wind turbines are beautiful, particularly if they're understood in, the, in, the, in this larger concept of a, of, a, of a planetary need, a kind of an evolution of the landscape to accommodate a larger concern. Hmm. Of course, I want to just uh, be a pain and say, <laughs> you know, so kind of in the same vein, someone could look at a coal-fired power plant or a chemical factory or an arms factory for that matter and say, you know, these are beautiful because they're yeah. in service of mm -hmm. human development or the war against fascism, if it was, you know, in the in <laughs> right. the 40s or, uh, or the war, you know, the effort to, you know, push back totalitarian and communism. And so... You know, so that context, you know, that kind of broader socio-political global context, historical, world historical context, um, could make lots of different kinds of things appear beautiful in, in different observers' eyes. I think that's correct. And I think that goes back to our conversation earlier about the developer seeing, um, you know, a new shopping center right. being beautiful. And uh, perhaps that suggests that mere aesthetics by itself doesn't serve the moral or normative function that mm -hmm. I'm that I'm uh, suggesting for it. You have to go deeper, 
and I think there's you know there, our views about these things are are determined or conditioned significantly on our worldviews and what we think at sort of the foundational level is important mm. uh, for for human and and non-human flourishing. Yeah, so so just to maybe get to, to your own experiences, this is a fascinating, and this seems like part of your project is this interplay between the direct sensory experiences that we have of the world, right? You know, which we can think of as just like this raw, I mean, the, the raw input, you know, photons hitting our eyeballs and that kind of thing. <laughs> Which our brains actually, you know, do an enormous amount of pre-processing right. before sending upstream to like the kind of cognitive centers where we could, you know, even conceive of, you know, aesthetic appreciation, right. um, ethical normative reasoning happening. So, so that's pretty structured just probably by our physiology. Um, but then there's, you know, any case we've got the we've got those cognitive, ethical, aesthetic judgments being made, or or somehow in our from the sensory experience, that presumably I, I think part of what you're what you're talking about that those set of sensory experiences and how we relate to our physical direct physical immediate context place, then informs the bigger picture uh, worldview kind of you know, uh, way that we put the world together, which then feeds back into our sensory, you know, that's sense feedbacks into our sensory perception um, or the way we interpret our sensory perception. That's the, um, you know, two people look at a mall mm. and they, and they feel it very differently based on their worldviews. But then that right. worldview came from somewhere. Right. And I think part of your argument is that worldview comes in part from our sensory experience and how we relate to place. So, um, so that's, you know, that's an, that's an interesting model. I wonder if we could put it to use a little bit to describe your own experiences or like, what are some of the ways that you've seen this fe- Have you seen this feedback happen in your own, uh, in your own history where places feed into a worldview that feeds back into how you interpret places? Um, is, is that, is that a way of thinking that has any resonance for you? Yes. I, th- I, I think that's, that's true, at least in my experience. I mean, I sort of think about my childhood with a very immediate, I, I grew up in Florida, um, which is a very different environment than the one I have inhabit now. But I, you know, that was a, a, a time, childhood is a time of a sort of immediate contact with the environment. And I spent a lot of time outdoors. Um, and um, developed a sense of comfort, I think, which some people don't have a sense of comfort being outdoors in um, a natural environment or a semi-natural environment. Um, And uh, that dimension of my early experience continued to develop with um, opportunities to go out west, for example, to work with my uncle on a horse farm during my teen years or um, camping trips that I took with an uncle who was to whom I was very close and so forth. And that sort of became a, a, a dimension of my outlook mm-hmm. and the pleasure of those trips, the significance of them and my developmental arc. Um, 
it was was sort of defining in a sense. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe that's unique to me, or maybe it's a function of opportunities I had or that other people didn't have, or maybe it's uh, maybe it's something entirely different. Maybe it's in the DNA. I don't know. I can't explain mm-hmm. it, but I I experienced the evolution of that, and that in turn has led me to make certain choices. I went to D.C. to be an environmental lawyer and make a career, but as soon as I'd sort of done that, I escaped to <laughs> the Virginia Piedmont because I wanted to be here. I mean, this is the place that I wanted to be uh, physically and um, um, uh, sort of from aesthetically. Hmm. And um, so my choice is, re- is reinforced. I see the things that I want to see now. I think, see the hmm. things that are, I think are beautiful and the uh, opportunities to move in a landscape that I, I value. So you, you, I guess you could see all that as a kind of a circle that, uh, that reinforces certain early tendencies and, and brings them to completion uh, toward the end of life. <laughs> Is a, you know, again, many different ways to take the conversation yeah, I know. here. I, I mean, that's a big load. Right. Part, part of... Um, Part of what I think is kind of fun about the the, the experiences you've shared is I, I I I relate to those you know the mm-hmm. the being a kid and being outside kind of in a what I think of as a semi disturbed you know uh, suburban landscape where right. at least that's where I grew up in upstate New York and it sounds a little bit like where you grew up in yes, in Florida exactly. right um, where you know there's rows of houses and you know you know, my father built our house on a acre of land, you know, that we cleared talking about clearing land actually. (laughs) And, um, you know, but, but within a, you know, five minute bike ride, there was, you know, woods and streams and, Mm -hmm. you know, all that places you can go camping and all that. And spent, and I spent an enormous amount of time like that. And I, and one kind of branch of the conversation is I wonder to what extent the, the contemporary environmental movement is just made up of, kids who like to play outside <laughs> when they were little and th- that ends up being very formative. And, um, and then, you know, and, and that's just kind of interesting perhaps that there's some experiences that a lot of people have shared, which are different from folks um, who live in really intensely developed urban environments or very, very rural um uh, you know places where there's um, there's there is a different way of relating to the landscape right. in terms of productivity and and you know agriculture and and the like. Um, so that's kind of one thread that I think is potentially interesting is just how a certain kind of experience can 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 play out and in, in, feed into almost a political debate. But the the other one I, I was you know the other almost challenge that I wanted to to raise a little bit more <laughs> of a being a pain is. <laughs> You know, it, it kind of this idea of nostalgia, right? And maybe these things are related that, you know, there are certain experiences that we have as kids and we relate to the world in a particular way, you know, and we spend like a huge part of our lives trying to get that back. You know, it's this kind of subconscious process. And part of that, part of in people engaging in environmental advocacy or, you know, going to certain types of landscapes, um, valuing certain types of vistas and the like 
is really a kind of psychological thing of of re you know of of recapturing a, a, a lost youth. <laughs> yeah. So that, all that's great. I love that. Uh, so kids that want to play outside become environmentalists. <laughs> right. Kids that don't want to or, or don't find much pleasure in it because they get stung by insects or right. prickled right. by brambles, you know, right. become uh, developers. I don't know. <laughs> that, that could be. And could maybe be. we're all predisposed one way or the other. I mean, mm-hmm. certain of us don't right. care so much about being bitten by insects. And, right. you know, we go on and and spend our lives longing for the woods. I think there, I think there is a, a, a nostalgia element, perhaps, in this. Um, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I, I, there's a poem from Wordsworth, and I can't remember it exactly, but he laments in middle age. He laments the lost connection mm-hmm. with with nature there's passed away a glory from the earth is the line i remember which is in the glory is this sort of immediate intuitive connection to nature which becomes less accessible to him um at least intuitively as he as he gets older and we i I think at least those who have the experience or think they've had the experience (laughs) of that as kids um feel that to some extent. You get older, you you know, have more sort of an intellectual approach to things, you're more rational, and there's this this sense of loss. But I think, and this may be deeper than than anyone wants to go, but I think there is <laughs> there is a a current and available connection um to nature and natural landscapes uh, in later life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And people describe it differently as cosmic joy or, you know, know, some sort of recognition of of the universal, or you can put it in religious terms, but I think that's available. To people who are open to it and have the capacity for it. And that's a very important component of life, or at least in those lives where it is, where it occurs. And I think in a way that it, it, I think to emphasize that sort of risks making environmentalists kind of a kind of elitists or, mm. you know, the protectors or, or purveyors of a rather specialized human experience. But, um, I don't know. I don't know how rare that experience is, uh, but it's one that I seek even when I don't find it and get immense pleasure from when I do find it and it's there. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, my impression is that people, like almost everybody, <laughs> is looking for something right. along the lines that you're describing. I mean, right. um, you know, whether it's – and they, they look for it in, in – in a church or, um, you know, lots of different ways. Um, you know, one, one question kind of, I think I keep returning to in a way on this is how much of this is tied to the kind of quote unquote nature, you know, the trees, you know, forests and, you know, undisturbed nature, places that look, um, you know, with comport with a certain idea of what a landscape right. looks like without right. human intervention, and and you know, and you've got various shades of 
of, you know, from that ideal on through to, you know, a, a city. And, you know, I think of some experiences that I had. So I used to live in New York before I came to New York City, before I came to Charlottesville. I grew up in upstate New York and I lived in the, the Brooklyn and Manhattan for a number of years. And, you know, I used to get around the city on a bike and I had some experiences I still very fondly remember of, you know, late at night when the when the streets aren't full of traffic, riding around in yeah, Manhattan and Brooklyn. Yeah. And that's awesome. It's an awesome yeah, experience. Yeah. And it's and I, you know, I've been on mountaintops and I've been in in forests and landscape. And those are awesome too. But once def at least in my experience, you know, they're 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 kind of a, they're very different from each other, but one's not clearly, you know, more you know, deeper or 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 broader. So I, so I, so yeah, so I'm, even though, you know, they're both in places, of course, well, which, cause you can't get away from that, but, right. um, you know, so, so I do wonder about this, you know, how much of what we're talking about is tied into this, um, you know, the, the undisturbed landscape kind of thing. Yeah. So I think, um, I, I think that's a really good point. I think the undisturbed landscape is one venue for this, but it's not the only venue. It can't be the only venue. And of course, when we're talking about undisturbed landscapes, I'm talking about the woods near my house. <laughs> Which those, are totally woods, disturbed. Those, right. those woods grew up on land that was totally disturbed yeah. by the early, you know, colonial settlers who basically ripped all the trees off the land so that they could farm it. So there's actually more trees now. Yeah. <laughs> There than there were, uh, you know, 150 years oh, ago. Oh, certainly, yeah. And they're not the same. You know, it's not Different a old-growth forest. It's mm-hmm. just a place with some trees. Probably some invasive species. Yep. Almost you know. certainly. Almost, almost certainly. certainly. August olive taking over all the. You know. So it's not. It's it. But but there is a a kind of an otherness to it. Mm that I think gives rise to um, a different state of mind uh, than we experience in, um, in more closely uh, packed or populated environments. But, that's, but, that's not, uh, but I think that even that's going too far because, you, you know, you can experience cosmic joy in New York City. <laughs> uh, they, they sell it in various uh, corners. Right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. I don't know. You know, Walt Whitman crossing yeah, right. um, the Staten Island Ferry or something. Yeah. That's, a very, that's a very connected, joyful poem. <laughs> And um, I think experience with people can mm-hmm. can uh, directly with people can produce that same sort of thing. So I don't I, I think there's a risk and you point this out of sort of valorizing these particular landscapes um, as the as the as the ultimate source of the of these kind of deep connections. Um, it's more it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. But they are one source. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so uh, to get into the complications a little bit, uh, you, you mentioned the kind of settlers and, you know, of course, you're talking about European settlers and, yeah. you know, the places that, that we live in are often very complex in that way. They have complex histories, complex right. um, history, political histories, complex histories with respect to justice and injustice. And, you know, maybe as a way to to get into that conversation, you know, even the idea of an undisturbed landscape <laughs> that is such a has such resonance 
uh, in the U.S. environmental movement um, and, and U.S. culture more generally, I think it's probably fair to say that that comes out of a, a, a particular European, you know, way of relating to a right. landscape that had been, you know, depopulated through disease and war and <laughs> expropriation. Right. And then, you know, once uh, the current indigenous people, you know, the indigenous, very substantial population of indigenous people, of folks and who were using the landscape in lots of ways um, for their own purposes were were pushed off or killed. And then people said, wow, isn't this beautiful here? <laughs> you yes, know, right, and, right. and that becomes a kind of idealized um, Eden. Um, so that's troubling, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, and, right. and, and when we're thinking about our own experiences with these beautiful landscapes and, and they're meaningful to us, you know, there is this background of, you know, injustice and suffering that exists on every landscape and, and many different layers, especially in the, in the Americas, but that, you know, it, it, that exists everywhere in the world. Um, there's a history to every landscape. So how do we, how do we make sense of, of that? We experience a place now viscerally, but part of the abstraction that comes with any place, you know, one abstraction is to locate that physical sensorium within a planetary context right. um, in a big three-dimensional space. But another way of, a, of providing context to that sensorium is in four-dimensional space. And we can take a, a, a spot and we can trace backwards in time. And, uh, and a lot of times that context is troubling and complicated. And how do, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, so that's so that's a great question too. Um, I mean, and 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 none of these landscapes is uncomplicated, as you say. I mean, the 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 land that I live on now was once a plantation. It's much smaller now <laughs> than it was in um, in pre Civil War times, but it has a house that was built before the Civil War and. Um, when after we moved in, we found an uh, an, an inventory that showed um, the names of enslaved people, uh, which we must have known had mm -hmm. been there. But when we saw the inventory, it kind of hit us with a with a with a ton of force mm -hmm. that, uh, in fact, that land had been the la uh, land on which um, people were. Held captive and forced to work. Yeah, uh, and um, we've spent a lot of time um, since then uh, learning who those people were and tracing th their descendants and trying to reconcile the the, the history to the place. Uh, but I'm not sure uh, that either either my wife or I. Uh, believe that a, a reconciliation is ultimately possible um, and that's just part of the history of the land an mm -hmm. ugly and and brutal part of the history of the land that will always be there for anyone who who takes any time to understand the mm -hmm. land and, and its history and of course as you talk about there's the earlier displacement of the Monacan Indians who were there and whose artifacts we find on the land, arrowheads and axe heads and so forth, they, they 
occupied that land, made their living off the land, and um, then we took it. <laughs> and we we own the land that that was there. So the so there's that forced labor and dispossession that are part of the history and part of an understanding of the place overall. And I think they qualify this, you know, the the more exhilarating, uh, they deeply qualify the more exhilarating mm. ex uh, dimensions of the experience. But they're all part of it. Yeah. So on this, on this, the qualification part of yeah. it, you know, is I'm just trying to, trying to think about how to even, you know, relate to this, to this question of, you know, is, is that, is it qualification, right? I guess is the, is the, is the question because, you know, it's like, is it an asterisk, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. like, oh, this is beautiful asterisk. Oh yeah. I was expropriated and, you know, enslaved people work here and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's something that we should all keep in mind. Let's go back and, you know, let, you know, let's, let's, okay. Now we've read the footnote. We can go back to appreciating the landscape. Yeah. Or is it something else where it's entangled with the beauty of the landscape in such a way that it doesn't even make sense to think of the landscape you know, as beautiful or as anything outside of this context. I, you know, I guess I'm, 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 I, I don't know if it's fully satisfying. The asterisk version, I'm not sure is fully satisfying, but I'm not sure that I have anything <laughs> better but to add I, as an alternative. You know, I, I, I totally agree with you. And um, it's, I mean, it's, I don't, I, I don't, I, I haven't yet in my own mind come fully to terms with how to integrate that information um, into the overall sense of the place. Uh, my wife has done a lot of work and to develop that information. So we know a lot about the people who were there now, mm -hmm. more than more than people believed were was possible when mm -hmm. we started out. And we are in communication with the people who are their descendants and have active discussions with them about the meaning of the place for them mm -hmm. and what they think we should think about the place in light of that history. Mm -hmm. So it's an ongoing discussion um, that, uh, that is very important to us in terms of living there, but I, I, I don't, I don't, have a an ultimate resolution and maybe that that the, the land is just permanently cursed hmm. by that history and what i'm not even sure what i mean when i say that hmm. but it may be a mark that can never be it's a mark that never will be eradicated but it may be a mark that that is, that remains toxic there's no way to detoxify it yeah i mean that's a that's a pretty uh uh, that's obviously a, a, a pessimistic, and maybe that doesn't mean it's wrong way. But right. on the other hand, you know, because you guys found this ledger and it had such an impact on you, and because you treated it seriously, and you know, uh, engaged with the history in a in a um, you know respectful way, you built a lot of relationships with people who you wouldn't otherwise have had any relationship right. with, and you know, just obvious. You know, human value that comes out of that. 
Well, that I mean, it's it's human value to us, and I think it's human value to the people, to the folks that we're involved with. But it's but it's fraught, also, mm. right? I mean, we're living in a house. I mean, we're living in a house that was uh the center of an oppressive mm-hmm. regime for their for their forebears right, right. Um, and well and clearly if you could go back in time you know you would you know and these are bad things that happened <laughs> right. and you know you know we're not and obviously you're not celebrating them you're acknowledging the reality that they happened and um you know, it's just the question. Uh, the, the really the only question that we have now is how do we relate to these events that we can't we can't do anything about them in the past, other than right. to. Um, but there are things that we could do uh, differently today, um, based on our understanding of those past events. I mean, one curious if if this is a fair characterization is, you know, we kind of started the conversation with this aesthetic versus moral kind of question about how to relate to landscapes and different people have different ways of relating to landscapes. And, you know, maybe it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's just a preference that doesn't need to be justified. Maybe there are judgments, either ethical or aesthetic that are made that could be subject to, you know, kind of reason deliberation. And I think here we're talking about a different way of relating to the landscape. You know, do we owe an obligation to, um, engage with these histories um you know is that a better way of relating to a landscape either aesthetically or morally than you know someone who comes along and says hey you know what let's just let's just forget about that (laughs) you know let's you know let's knock the old house down we'll build a new one and we won't worry about you know what this land was used for exactly right well i guess i mean that's a stark way of putting the question but I think I mean I think it's a, a, an important one and these I mean I've got, and, and this is not just history <laughs> uh, I mean we we had the experience of having one of the descendants of enslaved people at our house staying with us when the white supremacists came to town okay no that is it was crazy. just incidental yeah. right um, and so these you know this history extends like all histories <laughs> in in into the present in in hurtful and and threatening ways and so i think in a way accommod- coming to accommodation of with history is is a coming to an accommodation with with the present mm-hmm. so so last last uh, couple of questions for you i appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today no, john this is fun yeah um it relates to this kind of current political dilemma that we have around environmental issues. And again, at the beginning of the conversation, we, you know, I, I quoted that Ruckelshaus piece about, you right. know, lost consensus on the environment. And so on the one hand, you know, there is a way in which place is a uh, human universal. We all relate to a place. We all care about physical places and, and, and that's a way of bridging perhaps uh, uh, difference and political disagreement and so on. We can say, look, let's, let's look at this shared you know, foundation that we have as people located in places. 
Um, and that sounds promising as a way to maybe move, uh, build political coalitions and, and rebuild political consensus around, you know, making progress on environmental issues. But on the other hand, you know, you know, where the conversation ends is a very complex landscape of highly contested historical interpretation and difference and painful histories that uh, many people would like to pretend just didn't happen. And and that doesn't seem like a fruitful ground for building political compromise at all. Um, and so I guess the the final question for you is, is what role does this idea of place and different ways of relating to place and so on, um, does it have in uh, informing, you know, a path forward on politics or, or, or maybe uh, environmental politics or, or maybe not at all? Well, that's a good. Uh, that's a good final question, and I don't have a very good answer to it. I think the 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 contestation that uh, we've we've sort of identified in place means that it's hard. It's often just as hard to resolve questions at the local level as it is at the mm -hmm. national or international level. Mm -hmm. But I think the the fact of greater shared experience at the local level makes it easier in some ways to to overcome differences in interests and worldviews. Mm. The 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 shared experience is is significant. If you know somebody, or you know somebody who knows somebody, um, often that connection helps. Mm or at least minimizes the viciousness of the conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know that that builds to, a, to a, a sort of a more general model of conflict resolution at higher scales, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know that if, if you can resolve a land use issue at the local level, does that say anything about your ability to deal with climate change policy in in the, at the national level or the international level? And for those issues, you know, the resolution really has to occur at at the higher scales. Okay. Um, all, all, the, the only other point I would make is that it, it may be at the local scale where people are experiencing, for example. Uh, effects of climate change and sharing those experiences with their neighbors. There is some ability to build in a sort of bottoms up way some national consensus, but I have no, I, I have no real evidence for that. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thought though. And, you know, it's, it's worth exploring. I, one of the things I always appreciate about you, John, is that you don't overclaim. <laughs> <laughs> which is a very uh, uh, a scarce commodity of not overclaiming in 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 the world of environmental politics and legal scholarship. So um, I, I I always value that. Um, well, thanks so much for the conversation today. It was super interesting and uh, always a pleasure to chat with you. Thanks, Mike. I really appreciated it, and I hope I hope it was useful. <laughs> I feel much better. <laughs> Thank you.